Yo. Hello, hello. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Real Politic. Welcome back after our commercial break. <laughs> we want to shout out today uh, the uh, the toilet industry. They're doing the Lord's work everywhere, providing necessary equipment to people to perform bodily functions into. And I and I applaud them. They're the backbone of our quite uh, of uh, our proud nation. I'll tell you, uh, I got a toilet and I haven't looked back. Great man! Ever since they brought them in. Um, you don't have to go to the, the outhouse anymore. The 1940s is great, man. It's really cool that, that, that they set up the NHS and uh, they're gonna, they're gonna, uh, we're gonna have TV soon. Like what, like a decade or so in Britain? Wow. Maybe, maybe 20 years if we're poor. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> what more do we need? NHS, toilets and TV. <laughs> and the defeat of fascism. Wait, oh, let, yeah, me fi- let, let me let me finish in Germany and Italy and some other places. <laughs> but no, no, not in, yeah. Uh, in Very Eastern specific Europe. strands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Defe- sorry. Uh, let's just let, defeat of Hitler and Mussolini and keep uh, it simple. Hirohito, I guess. But Japanese Empire is a whole different. It's its own thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's not really fascism. They were just natural they were allies. allies of convenience yeah i mean not that they <laughs> were right wing they were but... fucking right wing yeah but but you know right wing it's uh you know, broad church no i, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> i can't I, I can't really tell you the nuances of what the hero i'd say the biggest story. difference is just that their colonialism kind of came out of a defensive reaction to western colonialism mm. so it's perhaps ethically somewhat different and obviously culturally distinct but not great either yeah yeah <laughs> my uh, take yo as a white guy so shall we talk about some costa gavras yes let's talk about costa gavras now the more serious just... segment of this recording yeah, let, let's move away from fascism nazis and violent right-wing dictatorial wait what (laughs) (laughs) hang on i've just checked the notes and (laughs) this is never mind i expected opposing the government and opposing the conservatives i'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control they want to uh, sideline moderate voices i don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left and of course we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any dissent well we know who the hard left are party who associate with the hard left. You just said so that we were right, right to right wing. The hard left agenda. Printing money, nationalisation without compensation. Hard left wing position. Hard so left. The hard 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 left. Yeah, 
Okay, we're going to be talking about a couple more, well, I'm going to be mentioning a bunch of films, but there's two that we've both watched in this. Yes. We're going to talk about some Costa-Gavras films, because he is probably, at this point, one of my favourite filmmakers. There's a lot to get... I can see why. Yeah. yeah, there's a hell of a lot to get into politically on this film. Well, it's because I just love films about right-wing totalitarianism, as you know. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 but this isn't like, you know, why I like when I'm like, oh, I love a good right-wing film, like, explaining away my my love of Clint Eastwood. <laughs> these are actually... These are, these are left-wing Critical. films. Critical. No, but yeah, yeah. these are left-wing <laughs> films that are, are critical of the right, as, as you say, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> definitely uh, I feel Missing was very loud about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, and and State of Siege. I, I, I mean, they all were State of Siege. State of yeah, Siege has but... more moral complexity to it because I do think it's critical of the leftist revolutionaries. But on the other yeah. hand, and, and we'll get to that as well, by the way, like I got some bullshit liberal fucking New York Times article to, to quote from. <laughs> but anyway, so... But Missing is pretty solidly Pinochet sucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you watched that. You watched that and State of Siege, didn't you? So those are two films he made. Yes, he made. Those are the two Costa Gavras films I'm prepared to talk about today. Yeah, Costa Gavras is a Greek filmmaker, but he's made films in various countries. These two films are both made in and set in Latin America. Again, we can get into the specifics of that a bit later on because in both cases they're not made in the country they're set in but um right. <laughs> he actually despite being greek never made a film in greece until 2019 which was his film the adults in the room <laughs> written by yanis varoufakis a film about the greek debt crisis i'm looking forward to right digging yeah. into that yeah and look look out for a forthcoming edition of our friend emmett crudis's film grays podcast where i'll be on there and we'll be talking about costa gavras and we'll be talking about the adults in the room which i haven't watched yet so we're not really going to be talking about it today but <laughs> the reason why costa gavras never made a film in greece until 2019 is he just came of age as greece was overtaken by a right-wing military dictatorship <laughs> so just as right. he was getting interested in going off and making films the conditions in greece which is not right for that and wouldn't be for many years to come and his classic film from 1969 Z, covers that well i said i'd seen 10 films by him i've now seen 10 and three quarters because i watched <laughs> the first hour of the sleeping car murders today and it's actually a really dope film that was his directorial debut not really political right. at all it's just a really good thriller with cool fucking french new wave editing and yeah. <laughs> all that good shit and just like because uh, did he make a lot of his films in france yeah predominantly yeah. his films are french movies but he's obviously gone around the world and it's pretty internationalist in his outlook i'd say oh yeah uh, like <laughs> he's, he's clearly coming from a leftist perspective and all a hundred percent like he's made films about greece about france about america about uruguay about chile about the nazi empire basically because our men takes place in a few different nazi occupied countries but he's done a lot of interesting stuff and like i say even when he did go to america which he did for a little while he still made left-wing films and quite kind of 
anti-American films, especially yeah. at the start. Missing. Is, oh yeah. Missing is a film that is bitterly opposed to American foreign policy. Uh, massive success, actually. But that was his first film that is predominantly in English. That was his <laughs> first film to be aimed at an American audience. And it is <laughs> highlighting the abject shame of the American Empire's involvement in the coup against Salvador Allende in 73. And also implicitly against other South American countries. Yeah, yeah these were practices that were going on widely particularly across Latin America, but in other parts of the world as well. Because I remember a big plot point being, I think, went the government people going to, was it Bolivia next? Or mm. Uruguay? Or yes. something? I don't know. What I recall is that, like State of Siege, like Zed, this film is incredibly methodical. Yes, completely. Uh, there's some wonderful symmetries in there. Like, I know the father character, I remember, he has this sort of speech for the wife character and he's like saying you know you're so your generation you know you're so why do you want to change it we got a good system <laughs> so this is the best system, the best way of life in the world why and then later on <laughs> exactly and uh then later on the u.s embassy staff say the exact same fucking speech to him <laughs> <laughs> it's this really kind of like procedural well, it's like, well, it's a word that people are irritatingly... Procedural's a good word. A word that people are irritatingly using to describe Keir Starmer all the time. Forensic. <laughs> this is such a forensic <laughs> film, it really goes, as with some of the others we'll talk about, it like goes into the minutiae about how right-wing authoritarian politics unfold and how they're yeah. un unleashed into the world and how they solidify their positions what it looks like on the street level to some extent the two films that the two of us watch to talk about with regard to costa gavras are his 1982 film missing which is as we say his first american film but it was made in mexico and it's so we should maybe say his first english language film but no no it says country united states distributed by universal produced by Polly graham oh, yeah. So those are those I are remember companies. seeing their logo. School by fucking Vangelis, who did Blade Runner School. This film, like many of Costa Gavras's other films, deals with right-wing authoritarianism in the form of Pinochet's coup in Chile in 1973 against Salvador Allende. And this has a big significance. It kind of links together this film with State of Siege, the other film that both of us watched for this episode. Yeah. Which, although I have to clarify again that I watched it like two months ago or something. But State of Siege is a film that's about Uruguayan politics. It was released in 1972. And at that time in 1972, Salvador Allende was president. And there was sufficient political freedom, the freedom of speech and artistic expression in Chile, that Allende allowed Costa Gavras to come to the country and make this film. There were some people in Chilean society, even on the left, who actually opposed this film being made. Gavras had actually made a lot of enemies on the left because he'd immediately followed up his breakthrough film Zed, a political masterpiece from 1969 about the Greek military coup, with a film called The Confession, which to this day I think is his only film where the bad guys are communists. 
it's a film where, like the other films, in fact, it stars Yves Montand, and he plays this Communist Party official in Czechoslovakia. He's literally a minister in the government, and he is accused of, like, crimes, you know, like, plotting against fucking communism Whoa. whatever yeah i know and they just like torture him and interrogate him <laughs> for just fuck loads of a film then like about halfway through you discover that he's not dead and so you're kind of like okay so like again it's that procedural thing it's like because he gets out of the way the suspense thing like you're not guessing just like the left-wing politician is killed 12 minutes into zed he stops you guessing about how is this going to turn out you know that the person is right. fucking dead. And or, in missing... Or, you, or, or not dead. You're pretty sure you know what happened to the guy. I feel in, miss- quickly. in missing, though, it's kind of a creeping dread that you know he's dead, but there isn't the confirmation early on. Yeah. There is doubt. There's that glimmer of hope that makes it all the more devastating when it is revealed. Yeah, he was just butchered by... The Chilean military, like so many others, in Santiago I mean, I f- Stadium. I feel like I, I at least was always sure straight away that he's being arrested. I, yeah. I don't know if he's dead, the, but he's being arrested. The but. thing is, though, yeah, I guess we're watching it with historical hindsight, but um, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess we are talking about how we perceive it as a cinematic experience, but Jack Lemon's character. Of course he doesn't think Sure, he's not crazy. Because he thinks uh, society works in a certain way and that there's a certain moral way that things are done, that people conduct themselves, and that there's a certain level of standards. Which decency. as like a middle-class American at that time, you would be perfectly normal to think that, probably. Yeah, so this is the kind of the crux of the film, which is that Jack Lemon, who gives an absolutely terrific performance, up there with Yves Morton's performances in Gavras's films. Yeah. He is this middle-aged businessman. He's not particularly conservative, not particularly liberal either. Just kind of a bit in the middle, really. Like just Republican a, light, he felt to me. Uh, yeah, yeah, I wasn't sure if he was a left-wing Republican. Like, quote-unquote. old-school Republican light, I don't know. Yeah, like, old-school Republican, like the equivalent of a one-nation Tory over here or whatever. Or if he was a right-wing Democrat. I wasn't... I, yeah. I, I, honestly, Similar. Literally. Similar categories. Yeah, same thing you know like honestly <laughs> it doesn't matter you can tell his worldview it's broadly liberal which means broadly reactionary you can see him voting for joe biden yeah 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 you see him being joe biden <laughs> uh, no uh, yeah yeah no i mean it is so interesting that he gets wind that his son who's kind of a radical this is it's just come to mind actually that he's talking to the officials in chile and they're kind of like oh so what were your son's political affiliations and he was like I would say he was a liberal. <laughs> is the daughter-in-law, yeah. his son's wife, played by Sissy Spacek, is she there about the time? Because Great he's definitely not a liberal. His son is 100% a communist. Yeah. I got the feeling like they were both pretty much radicals, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I to some just... extent or another. Yeah, I mean, it's worth saying that Allende's political coalition was like it was a coalition it was like a left unity yeah. kind of thing it was broad it included communists and other socialists so well, like the, the characters in this movie struck me as hippies basically they are they're, uh, they're some it, sort of hippie they're the 1960s american new left 
essentially. Mm-hmm. They're like the generation that was radicalized on campus. Yeah, yeah. They were like the 1968 Democratic Convention people, you know? They were the fucking people who would have protested at Kent State. Yeah. That's the kind of historical political epoch that these people are part of. Probably like <laughs> members of the White Panthers or something. But <laughs> Jack Lemon just he dismisses everything that his radical daughter-in-law says about how it's a it, it's, there's a fascist coup going on effectively, and he's like, no, nah, it's not fascist. Coup. Don't, that's so hyperbolic. These people you're not just, getting shot in the street. Here's gunshots in the street. Yeah, yeah, literally, like, people do get shot in the street. <laughs> but he's um, <laughs> but he's just kind of like, no, no, fascism. That was like a thing that happened in World War Two. That's not happening right now. Look, it's over. It, you can't just go around calling everyone fascist. I mean, I know people <laughs> on the left who say, again, kind of what I said about Hirohito, like, oh, well, Pinochet wasn't a fascist. He was his own kind of thing. I, I mean, I kind of disagree with that. I think he basically was a fascist. But Jack Lemon, Close enough that you're splitting hairs. The trajectory of the film is Jack Lemon's character, who at first is like, oh, all this stuff, you're just a crank. You're like, this is just mad conspiracy theories about how the right are just launching a brutal totalitarian coup that's completely undemocratic and America are helping them. This is just all absurd conspiracy theories. And as the film goes on, he is just bit by bit thoroughly disabused of that notion until by the end he's like a shell of a man who realises that his son has been brutally killed by fascists. He just cannot ignore any longer the reality of what is happening. Because, yeah, it doesn't fit into his worldview. So he has to start questioning his worldview. The foundations of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing that's so tragic about it is that for so long, he is just willing to believe everyone but his daughter-in-law. Anyone who gives him that nugget of hope that his worldview is not a lie. And he just gets repeatedly, no, no. No. Here's rooms full of dead bodies. Have a look around. It's oh, horrifying. I'm pretty sure I cried at this movie at a couple it's of points. Devastating. It's, it's harrowing. Both yeah. Sissy Spacek and Jack Lemon are so fucking good in it. It's a really yeah. good film. And of course, like State of Siege, it's based on something real that happened. Well, I mean, the coup definitely happened. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The film ends in a fascinating way. This is the ultimate bit. So I say that by the end of the film, Jack Lemon is completely disabused of yes. uh, any notion he has about politics. No, actually, this man is an idealist to the core because he <laughs> tells the embassy officials when he finds out his son has been murdered. I just thank God we live in a country where we can still put people like you in jail. The film right. ends with a postscript stating that after his return to the United States, Ed received the body of his son, Charlie, seven months later, making an autopsy impossible, and that a subsequent lawsuit against the US government was dismissed. Yeah, it is totally based on real people, because all the characters in it have Wikipedia pages. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck, okay. This is all so fucked up. And that his subsequent lawsuit against the US government was dismissed. It also adds that the State Department denies its involvement in the Pinochet coup, a position maintained to the present day, with just zero credibility. (laughs) 
It makes you think, doesn't it? How people laugh when they hear people believe Kim Jong-un doesn't shit or something. Like, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the kind of stuff that we swallow without questioning. Yeah, it's like, just like, oh, yeah, 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 you know, the United States didn't do anything to help Pinochet get into power. Also, you know, Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. <laughs> it's like, exactly. it, yeah. it's more of a fucking conspiracy theory to believe the official line on this stuff than it is to think that something's <laughs> amiss there. Like I said, that's just not a credible position to maintain at all that the State Department was not involved in the tragedy of September the 11th, 1973. Totally. By the way, such a baller move of Ken Loach when he was asked to do this short film about 9-11 for a film of short films about 9-11. And Loach did a film about 9-11-1973 and it was like the, the, this Chilean guy who'd survived the fucking coup who was just like I hope that while I remember America's suffering you'll remember the Chilean coup of 73 and he talks about it and it's just like American Fantastic. reactionary Americans were so offended by it it's I literally hang on let me Ken Loach 9-11 to be fair, overall, internationally, it was the most acclaimed short film within that particular <laughs> anthology because it was powerful and heartfelt stuff. You a... can imagine most of the other stuff would have just been flag-waving, trite. Sean Penn directed one for it, which is probably a worse atrocity than the actual event. <laughs> Yeah, it's it might have been Alejandro Gonzalez in Uritu who did a really bad one. Yeah, Empire said that Ken Loach's was the only good one in it. It's very <laughs> discerning taste from Empire magazine there. Philip French from The Observer, ultra hawk Blairite rag The Observer, said that the most forceful contribution is Ken Loach. So like I say, <laughs> I bet some of the rotten reviews are really Loach is a cunt, but yeah. I think actually his provocation paid off there, ultimately, because people were like, no, that is actually a bold thing to do, <laughs> and I respect right. that. I especially bet in most of the rest of the world, it took pretty well compared to the US. Yeah, 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 because everyone <laughs> is like, yeah, yeah, America... There are <laughs> other things than America. <laughs> America doesn't give a fuck about our tragedy. <laughs> Why should we fucking give so much of a shit about, what, 3,000 people? Pinochet yeah. killed more than that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not even counting the people who disappeared. Like, at least fucking Ed Horman, Jack Lemmon's character, at least he found out that his son had died. Yeah. At least he found out the truth. I did always originally think that he was going to be one of the people who was thrown in the ocean or something. Never found. It wasn't the ocean in Chile so much. I think it was the Atacama Desert. Was Vast. it both? I'm sure no, this. Pro- oh, sure yeah, pro- maybe both. both. I don't know. Maybe you know more. Uh, you probably do know more. Well, there's <laughs> that great this. documentary by Patricia Guzman, Nostalgia for the Light, which features a lot of stuff in the Atacama. Oh, about yeah. How there's just so many unidentified human bones out there. Yeah. They've not had any kind of like truth and reconciliation thing or anything like that, or a Nuremberg type thing really in Chile. It's a bit buried, similar to how it is in Spain. They've never really come to terms with it. There are obviously people there who that's like all they do. They try and come to terms with it, much like the filmmaker Patricio Guzman, who pretty much only makes films dealing with the legacy of Pinochet. Yeah. Um, I mean, as we know from our earlier discussion, is there ever really a reckoning with these things? Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, superficially. You try and you try. Hitler shot him. Actually, you know, Hitler sort of took the easy way out. Pinochet never 
had a gun to his head even by his own hand, to my knowledge. No. Pinochet <laughs> lived a long life. When he came to Britain, he was protected by the Blair government. And of course, before that, by his friends Thatcher and Major. There's places all around the world, like um, like Indonesia, for example. The oh, people yeah. there mingle with the people whose families they murdered decades ago. Yeah. That, that, there's been no kind of reckoning there. I'm, I'm wrong. Have in we saying ever done the act of killing? We've uh, not, but I can't. I <laughs> I'd have to rewatch it. It would need to be a rewatch. <laughs> Fuck me! <laughs> oh my god! The guy has directed more films as well. Josh Oppenheimer. Who was this? I know I saw a sequel. The Silence. The Look of Silence. Sound of, yeah, I, the Look I, of I Silence. Couldn't watch it. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, I mean, I didn't try. I, I should. Right. But they're very yeah. bleak. Costa Gavras, at least he makes fiction films. They're yeah. kind of thrillers. They're pretty entertaining. Yeah, so let's talk about the other film by Gavras that we watched then, which ties right. very closely in. So, Missing was obviously set in Chile. But by 1982, the Pinochet regime had been in power for nine years and they wouldn't leave power until, I think, 1988. And so they were obviously not able to film the movie in Chile. But State of Siege, we said that this film meanwhile, <laughs> was set in Uruguay, but it was shot in Chile while Allende was president. Yeah. It's never stated what it's in. I think that was in part because it was trying to kind of say that this stuff happens in a lot of places. Many US officials hated the movie and stated that it was a heap of lies <laughs> about like, oh, what, really, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. out. So State of Siege is about a real life event. And like I said, I remembered watching State of Siege on YouTube, the same version that I think I sent you, because it's a really yeah. good quality version. But I think I did have that same version downloaded because I watched the special features for it today. Must have downloaded the Criterion Edition. And there's firstly a really interesting half hour interview of Costa Gavras. And then even more interesting is a seven-minute collection of news footage documenting the case of Dan Mitrioni, who was a U.S. <coughs> aid worker, <coughs> diplomat, <coughs> you know? <laughs> Got a bit of a cough there. <laughs> what, do, what, what, did he, what did he work for? He worked for a certain organization. United Fruit Company? <laughs> no, it wasn't. I it know their name comes up in the film. The International Cooperation oh, Administration. No, that, that thing. Yeah. Ah, here we go. The United States Agency for International Development. U.S. That's the one. U.S. Aid. <laughs> yeah, there we go. And the Police Aid Program was reorganized into the Office of Public Safety. That sounds like it's going to be like putting in regulations to like, don't put ladders in that particular fucking place next to the can of paint that's going to fall on someone's head. The <laughs> Office of Public Safety. But it's actually just like the Office of Political Repression set up by, of course, my, <laughs> my hero, John F. Kennedy, 
to provide assistance to US allies in the Cold War. So this shit was what the character played by Yves Mortin in State of Siege is all about. The OPS would provide Latin American police forces with millions of dollars worth of weapons and train thousands of Latin American police officers. In the late 1960s, such programs came under media and congressional scrutiny because US provided equipment and personnel were linked to cases of torture, murder, and disappearance in Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay. This is how fucked up this is. Two of those countries, Costa Gavras hasn't even made a film about. There's so <laughs> many countries where the USA has done this, but Costa hasn't even made his way into all of them yet. Yeah. But the Office of Public Safety remained immune to public embarrassment as it went about two of its chief functions in DC. This is allowing the CIA to plant men with the local police in sensitive places around the world. Sensitive meaning places where, like, the polls were showing the Communist Party ahead. And after careful observation on their home territory, bringing to the United States prime candidates for enrollment as CIA employees. Uh, their <laughs> OPS, their, direct, yeah. their director in Washington was close to the CIA. In the 60s, Brazilian opposition members started whistleblowing on them, basically, to a US senator who tried to disclose their program, but they seemed to be operational for quite a while after that. And here is what it says on their Wikipedia page about Uruguay their specific involvement in the country where this film is set. The OPS had operated in Uruguay since 1964, supplying the police with equipment, arms and training. Training involved courses on explosives, assassination and riot control. Riot control, probably... So you like you hire a bunch of counter demonstrators. You get them to come along with bricks and baseball bats and sometimes guns and they beat up the left-wingers in the riot and so do the police and then you've got them under control yeah. and i presume that the courses on explosives and assassination were not diffusing explosives and preventing assassinations <laughs> between 1969 and 1973 at least 19 uruguayan police officers were trained in cia and ops schools in washington dc and in los fresnos texas to be taught the handling of explosives on several occasions, the pupils were not police officers, but individuals affiliated with the Uruguayan right wing. So just like paramilitary thugs. By 1970, the OPS had trained a thousand police officers in riot control. You know, if you're thinking of doing like some kind of military coup or something and it seems like <laughs> wait what the school of the americas was only created in 2001 that can't be true oh right no it was created in 1946 <laughs> it's just renamed that makes more sense 2001 i was just looking at the school of the americas because that was essentially where the united states had their thugs God, some of them probably drawn from the Third Reich, teach all sorts of people from scrolling down the page. It says Panama. There's a lot about Panama in this section. Yeah, I <laughs> bet. Noriega was that? Yeah, yeah, that would be Noriega, who was a US ally until he wasn't anymore, and they did a coup against him. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, like, running bear coke and stuff while he was a US ally. 
Just like the CIA. Insert clip from that fucking Michael Bay film where the dictator thinks that he's safe because he's working with Russia and the US. (laughs) (laughs) But I just love that, the Office of Public Safety. Like, just right. Kind of like what a perfect innocuous name. Oh, that's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Fucking hell. Real 1984 George Orwell kind of stuff. Yeah. I was thinking so... like it's somewhat more like the Third Reich, like Office of Racial Purity or whatever they called it. I forget yeah. the exact term. Mm, that's that's weird. <laughs> yeah. So so basically, this guy Dan Mitrioni was an American guy, but his parents were from Italy, and he was born there originally. I think he lived most of his life in America. He was a patrolman, and then he was a local chief of police, which he held for four years, and then he joined the public safety program of the International Cooperation Administration. I'm just going to point out that the the acronym for this is ICA. I mean, could, could they be any more fucking blatant? <laughs> like, literally, just swapped around one letter. <laughs> Which provided US aid and training to civilian police in third world countries around the world. And then he was posted in Brazil originally. And this is all in State of Siege, isn't it? They mention his time in Brazil. Yeah. He, then The boys yes, from Brazil. The boys from... There we go, the boys from Brazil. He was transferred to Rio de Janeiro in 62 before that he was in Belo Horizonte he served as a training advisor for another five years and then was rotated back to the United States and he taught for two years at the OPS International Police Academy in Washington DC now the way that's depicted in State of Siege is just like this big load of just kind of cops from all different countries like a rainbow coalition of right-wing cops (laughs) and they're you know it's just like him and a bunch of other like boring cop men on stage just like so you waterboard them like this now waterboarding is is actually quite tame by the standards of what these guys electrocute their testicles like this yeah yeah that is what they did isn't it electrocute (laughs) the underside of their eyeball all these various weird sensitive areas yeah so this dan mitrioni guy after his, what, five years or whatever in Brazil, he then went to Uruguay. Apparently, the Uruguayan government had its hands full with a collapsing economy, labor and student strikes. Yeah, that sounds Ooh. very much like right Call in Maggie. history. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, we better, like, have a police state and, like, ban <laughs> unions and stuff. Better go full fash. Yeah, and the Tupameros, a left-wing urban terrorism guerrilla group. On the other hand, Washington feared a possible victory during the elections of the Frente Amplio, a left-wing coalition, also on the model of the uh, Cuban... On the model of the also Cuban-supported victory of the... I get distracted, like, ranting here, but they're talking about on the model of the also Cuban-fronted Salvador Allende coalition. Also Cuban-supported. Like, that's anything <laughs> equivalent to, like, being American-supported. You could, like, say some about... confusing syntax as well. Yeah, I I just, this feels like it's written by someone who is either a right-wing partisan or just trying to be overly objective <laughs> in a very clunky way. But I wonder if the US were like more worried about the prospect of that left-wing coalition having a legitimate electoral victory than they were about the, oh, the collapsing economy, which was probably because they were fucking it up. I mean, economic warfare, as America always does, labor and student strikes... <laughs> 
Oh, it's terrible when people like stand yeah. up for themselves. Better call. I bet one of the things that the students wanted was less U.S. involvement. Uh, yeah, in yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm just gonna throw it out there. <laughs> the OPS had been helping the police since 1965, providing them with weapons and training. Former Uruguayan police officials and CIA operatives stated Mitrioni had taught torture techniques to Uruguayan police in the cellar of his Montevideo Montevideo. Montevideo home, including the use of electrical shocks delivered to his victims' mouths and genitals. He also helped train foreign police agents in the United States in the context of the Cold War. It has been alleged that he used homeless people for training purposes who were executed once they served their purpose. Mitrioni was kidnapped then by the two Pomeros, the left-wing guerrillas, in 1970, demanding the release of 150 political prisoners, and then he was found shot dead in a car. So doesn't the film start with a cop finding his body in a car? Yeah, I think so. His wife's crying and stuff, and... Like, oh, how did he yeah. get here then? A that's sort, one sort of a Hollywood Boulevard, Sunset <laughs> Boulevard, Sunset, Sunset Boulevard. Yes, I wanted to read you this bit on the. This is just a good ass Wikipedia page. So he was shot twice in the head, but with no other visible signs of maltreatment, other than the fact that he'd been shot in one shoulder during the kidnap itself. But here's the thing: the wound had been treated in captivity by the left-wing guerrillas as well as doing no other yeah. visible maltreatment. Anyway, in his autobiography, Ambassador Ortiz, Lessons of a Life of Service to Fascism, which I'm sure, I'm sure it's the terrible <laughs> book, Frank V. Ortiz, whose appointment as Deputy Chief Mission at the United States Embassy in Montevideo, Montevideo coincided with the kidnapping and killing of Michioni. He wrote, My first duty on my first day in Montevideo, I'm gonna say that right one time. Montevideo, Montevideo, was to. I like that you take like four goes every time. <laughs> was to attend a memorial service for Dan Mitrioni, a former chief of police from New Mexico who headed the U.S. mission to train the Uruguayan police to combat terrorism. He fucking admits it himself to combat terrorism. Just four <laughs> days before we arrived, the two Pomeras had kidnapped him blah 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 they also captured the head of the commercial section of the embassy by hitting him on the head wrapping him in a rug and tying him in the back of the pickup <laughs> fortunately he worked his ties loose and jumped out of the pickup while it was still speeding down the road that by the way is a hilarious scene in the film it like is. costa gavras <laughs> confirms in the interview that he totally played it for laughs because he's just like, well, look, life is not this kind of just completely do a serious thing. Even at the yeah. most horrible times, there are just moments where the pool is broken by just a moment of comedy when you least <laughs> expect it. There's a couple of little bits like that in there, but that's the main one. The terrorists also tried to take... No, never mind. They, basically, they tried to kidnap some other guy and failed because he honked his car horn. <laughs> <laughs> but poor Mitrioni, he says, they tied him up tortured him and finally killed him there's no fucking the torture thing by the way no fucking lie <laughs> no, no evidence of that yeah. no visible signs of maltreatment i don't know maybe they were waterboarding him the version that costa gavras <laughs> tells definitely doesn't involve any torture they did kill him but in state of siege he's given a pretty fair trial I have to say it's a much fairer trial than the one given to the, the communist guy by the other communists in The Confession. Right. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it's it's a pretty fair shake. But just going back to the history of it for a second, I mean, this is where like the plot thickens. So he was obviously killed. The torture thing is disputed. I mean, some people dispute that Dan Mitrioni was complicit in torture and in teaching people in Latin America to do it, which bullshit. Those people are all like fucking deep state <laughs> stooges. Fuck the lot of them. They're all apologists for war crimes. But on one day, almost 17 years ago, this New York Times piece from 1987 reads, Dan Mitrioni, an American police advisor, was kidnapped by Tupamaro guerrillas as he left his house in Serban Carasso. Ten days later, his body was found in an abandoned car. The kidnapping and killing became the basis for the Costa Gavras film State of Siege, which glorified the guerrilla movement and implied that the United States government, through its public safety assistance program, was helping to train Latin American police forces in methods of torture. Oh, what an outrageous allegation. <laughs> How are, the New, thank God, the New York Times, like, what, uh, is making sure democracy doesn't die, of truth. die in yeah. darkness. Oh, that's what Washington Post, I think. But still, like, it's just amazing these people, especially in the Trump era, they all hold themselves up as, like, speaking truth to power. And you get just, like, two total dishonest mischaracterizations of that film in Such one go. Such reactionary bullshit. <laughs> it does not glorify the guerrilla movement. Yes, it's sympathetic to their political aims, but Gavras is unmistakably... I mean, if you listen to the interview, he's on the record as being personally opposed to the acts of violence, strategically and morally. And the point he's making is that these people were driven to the point of violence by a society that is becoming increasingly violent, where it may on the surface resemble a democracy, but in every other aspect is inching further and further towards a kind of fascist state, which was definitely happening in Uruguay at that time. Although his actions are portrayed as being repugnant. They don't really demonise the Eve Morlong character, the torturer guy based on the real dude. Yeah. He's completely humanised. You see him with his family, you see him having reasonable, com well, you know, reasonable conversations. You or I won't agree with what he says, but... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like we say, the communist guerrillas give him a reasonably fair trial. He puts his own side forward, and they let him put it forward very eloquently. They just have the proof that he's in on this stuff. Something I think that is a really remarkable thing is where they have the vote on whether to kill him or not. That just a, yeah. just a great sequence it's where the guy is just sitting on the bus, and one by one, all the people come in, and he says something like, "It's what does he say? It's It's not a matter of heart he doesn't have any it's a, it's a matter of uh, politics or something it's not a matter of ideology. yeah i don't know something along those lines something like that yeah and costa gavaris is the guy interviewing him and gavaris concurs so it's like that guy is almost hoping that people will say no and of course they don't there's a couple of no's but people overwhelmingly agree to kill the guy because i guess there's this kind of, you know this sort of disciplined cadre behavior on the left at that time especially in really far radical left groups they're very yeah. much about following a particular line especially in these guerrilla groups but yeah he is of course eventually killed i want to get to the interesting historical bit about his 
killing. So back to this New York Times article. So there's that paragraph which is just straight up lies for the first fucking <laughs> for the first sentence, which is just all about nonsense about glorifying the guerrilla movement and implied that the United States government was helping. It didn't imply; it alleged. It's like it's pretty different. It didn't like skirt around the edges. It was. It didn't beat around the bush. It was like this is what's fucking happening. Anyway, today the man who led the two Pomeros says the guerrillas had not planned to kill Mr. Mitrioni, but that it had occurred because of a breakdown in communications after the Uruguayan security forces captured the leaders, who were unable to send instructions to those holding him. The guy was released from prison and pardoned in 1985 after the armed forces turned over power to an elected government. Mr. Sendik was at this point in 1987 working with other former guerrillas to find a place for the national liberation movement on the legal political scene. Mr. Sendik, speaking recently about the political crime that thrust Uruguay into the international limelight, said that Mr. Mitrioni had been selected as a target for kidnapping because he was helping to teach riot control procedures to the Uruguayan police. Although not specifically accusing Mr. Mitrioni of instructing in torture, as was suggested in State of Siege, he said student demonstrators had been killed by the Uruguayan police as a result of the anti-riot training. When I was doing my research earlier here, some people try and use that guy not mentioning torture in regards to Mitrioni in this particular interview as something to exonerate Mitrioni. Like, I found a big hmm. thing that was just accusing State of Siege of being a pack of lies. And I was like, mm, I know you are, but what am I? Like, this seems like <laughs> lies to me. Because uh, they were just kind of saying, nowhere in these quotes from this one guy in the movement do they mention this guy being complicit in torture anywhere. And it's like, well, it also says in here that a bullet passed through his cheek and took off part of his tongue in 1972. So maybe, like, there were some communication issues when him relaying this information to a Shirley Christian. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, no, he didn't torture people. Well, sorry, he very likely did torture people, but it wasn't mentioned this one time by this one guy. But he did, like, <laughs> teach the police techniques with which to kill students. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, oh, this guy totally vindicated, you know, exonerated in the eyes of God. <laughs> Fucking vindicated. Fucking vindicated. I feel so elated to be fucking vindicated. An American. And listen to this, so here we've got the shadowy anonymous source briefing the New York Times with the American line here. An American, familiar with Mr. Mitrioni's work at the time, the guy who fucking like plugged the circuits into people's nipples, said it was true <laughs> that Mr. Mitrioni was giving anti-riot training, but it had focused on ways to put down demonstrations, quote-unquote, without creating martyrs. What does that mean? Something, something. I'm just, yeah. I'm just having to assume that's something worse than death. That does seem <laughs> a little different than without killing people. Like you phrased it that way on purpose. I don't know. <laughs> just making sure they don't have any like kind of afterlife. <laughs> or just like they get killing, death, but it's, it's going to be anonymous and not going to be known for it. Killing them and smearing them at the same time as doing it. So the... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but they literally some 1984 did do that. shit. 
<laughs> no, but they did do that in all these places. To yeah. communists and socialists, man. Anyway, um, Mr. Sendik. Yeah, okay, so this gets good. Oh, here we go. The United States cut off training for police forces in Uruguay in 1973, and by July 1st, 1975, Congress shut down all such assistance programs. I mean, you know, I don't buy it. If it did cease in 1975, it was temporary because, like, <laughs> what the Reagan administration did in Latin America in the following decade was fucking, like, turbocharged Nixon-era meddling. What they mean is that it ceased operating under that name, had they Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do we call it now? The organization of nice things and helping people. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Sendik, so this is the leader of the guerrillas, the left-wingers. Mr. Sendik said that he had not been part of the command that kidnapped Mr. Mitrioni and held him in a house in Montevideo Montevideo for 10 days, but was making the decisions from another location in the city, accompanied by other members of the Tupamero directorate. Mr. Sendik said that the Tupameros demanded the release of about 150 imprisoned guerrillas and threatened to kill Mr. Mitrioni if the demand was not met. The Tupamero leaders decided later, he said, that if the government continued to refuse the demand, they would hold Mr. Mitrioni indefinitely instead of killing him. But, after they decided that they were going to spare his life, a week after the kidnapping, on August 7th, 1970, the police raided the house where the leadership was staying and captured Mr. Sendik and the others. A short time later, he said, the replacement leadership, which also knew of a plan to keep Mr. Mitrioni alive, was also captured. <laughs> Those captured lost all contact with the others. And when the deadline came, the group that was left with Mitrioni did not know what to do. So they decided to carry out the threat. Makes I, sense, lo I, guess. I yeah. love in the film that Mr. Mitrioni, played by Yves Morlan, he is like, well, if I was in your position, I would kill me. <laughs> <laughs> and he does yeah. not in any way expect America to release the hostages and let him out. Because all no, the... He knows how they play. The institutions are like... I think maybe I was looking for the word bureaucratic earlier when talking about Gavras's films, because he always gets into the nitty-gritty, like the men in suits in rooms, talking about, right, how are we going to do this then? Like his great film special section, which he made after this, which is about Vichy France... And it's where a Nazi is killed by the resistance in France, basically. And so high office in Germany calls up Vichy and they're like, we want six people executed because of this. We don't care who just executes six people. Well, firstly, they all kind of panic, all these terrible Vichy collaborator sellout bastards. They're all <laughs> worried about their own... They want to protect their own necks. So they yeah. all go along with it. They're like, oh, okay, okay, round up. 50 Jews and 50 communists. When in doubt, and you're, you're running a fascist government, obviously, yeah, just round up some Jews and some communists and we'll just pick six of them to execute. But the whole film, it's this really, again, procedural, bureaucratic kind of thing. Well, the Vichy government are trying to change the law so that they can retroactively charge people with crimes after they've already killed them <laughs> without trial. <laughs> it's, just, it's amazing. It's literally pure Costa Gavras. That's the most kind of him thing you can imagine. You know, I think I just mentioned Zed to you earlier. 
And I was yeah. like, oh, it's about the Greek coup, man. It's real classic Costa Gavras. And you're like, yeah, sounds it. Because he's just done so <laughs> yeah. many films about coups and <laughs> shit, you know? <laughs> yeah, but I, completely. I, I love Special Section. Sorry, I mean, I love Special Section, but I love State of Siege as well, man. Whatever the fucking New York really Times scumbags film. say about it. Yeah, it's so. <laughs> that's the thing. These films aren't. I've never found a Costa Gavras film apart from maybe Capital, which he made in 2012. And that's about like finance rather than coups and stuff. So it's not as exciting. By and the name, yeah. <laughs> well, and he's old now. So he's just, you know, he just hasn't got the energy he used to. But all these films, they don't feel like dry. You sit down and it's like, here's the static camera pointed at a commune where they're like sewing shirts for, for three hours it's it's not it's not like that kind of thing christ there's a lot of cuts in fact he doesn't give a shit about linear narrative i mean the narratives are fairly linear but he'll do lots of flashbacks and shit lots yeah. of contextual stuff if someone's telling somebody about something then he'll be like well why not show it <laughs> why not <laughs> they're just such exciting films and they've always got these like we said at the end of missing when Jack Lemon says, I'm so glad I live in a country where I can send men like you to prison. And then the caption comes up like, yeah, no, they all got away with it. <laughs> <laughs> he loves these kind of like bitter punchlines. Zed being one of them, where finally all the bastards who assassinated this left-wing politician, played by the great Eve Morland, who plays our favourite torturer in state of siege he gets assassinated and then finally at the end of the film it looks like the magistrate has started to unpick the conspiracy and he's calling in all the generals and stuff on charges of murder and then it's like loads of the witnesses died mysteriously the generals were all cleared and the military then took over the country and they removed the magistrate from his job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then you find out why the film's called Zed, because they do a big list of things that that government banned, including just like Freud, the Beatles, like McDonald's, I, d I don't know, loads of stuff, and the letter Z, which means he lives in Greek. <laughs> <laughs> fascism is crazy dude like it just that's the Wild thing it ride. yeah like what's what's up with these people but yeah the reason that costa gavras didn't make any films in greece in that period was because he wouldn't have been able to use the letter z in greece let alone make a film <laughs> It's uh, a good reason, yeah. <laughs> Should we just so I can point you in the direction of what to watch next? Can I just kind of skim some of his other films? Of course, go for it. I definitely think you should watch Section Special. <laughs> special sections Spe on there, yeah. Special section is really, really, really good. That's classic stuff. The Confession is really, really, really good. The... That's also on this <laughs> trusty post-it note. I've not Keep seen going. Woman Light, nor Hannah Kay, nor Family Business. But amen. I, oh, amen. Yeah. I thought you were just saying <laughs> that I was a question. That either. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really like Amen. For me, that's his best late period film. Actually, it came out in two thousand and two. Stars Ulrich Tukur and Matthew Kasovich as a scholar of the Holocaust. You will uh, enjoy this one yep. during World War Two. Kurt Geisen, a Waffen SS officer employed by the SS Hygiene Institute 
designs programs for the purification of water so you know like filtering out the fluoride to keep the, the german people heterosexual and the destruction of vermin he is shocked to learn that the process he has developed to eradicate typhus zyklon b can you see where this yeah. is going is now being used for killing jews and other undesirables in extermination camps so he basically tries to tell the pope about this and everyone in the catholic church is just like nah dude that's just bullshit what are you again it's just like the missing thing of like all the people in the catholic church are like dude that's just a conspiracy theory what are you talking about you've got a Tim foil hat on your head you absolute crank <laughs> and he's like no no I'm I'm in the SS I've seen it with my own eyes I made the Zycon B they're like nah nah, <laughs> ah, nah 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 so basically the church like constantly shift the goalposts he finds a priest who does care who will like use him as a whistleblower this guy's played by Matthew Kasovich who directed Latin he's a young Jesuit priest and he's like the only person who cares about what he's told like after the bishop that he works for the main character the ss guy goes to the bishop and tries to tell him about it the guy's like what what this is outrageous get out of here and then the priest is just kind of like oh you know i think that's bad that they're doing that and then eventually he gets an audience with the pope and then they're all just like hey mind your tone <laughs> it's like <laughs> don't hey don't be so emotional when telling the holy father about this awful awful genocide that's happening once they've got through the this isn't actually happening and then the we just object to the manner in which you're trying to tell us it just becomes absolutely crystal clear but they just don't care right there's this one particularly striking scene in it where i mean i'm not a catholic so i forget like the terms for these but the pope is giving like his new year's address or something christmas or new year's either way the priest has been tipped off that the Pope is going to come down really hard against the Nazis and the treatment of the Jewish people. He's going to bring some fire and brimstone. So the SS officer and the priest, they're like spending Christmas together, I guess. They're crowding around the radio like, oh, I can't wait for the Pope to just use his moral authority to condemn this crime in the starkest possible terms and then the pope gets to the bit in the speech and he's just like yo um yeah uh, you know hate is bad yeah um on all sides right uh violence begets violence um yeah and you know um yeah uh, basically you know be be nice to people just to take a chill pill guys you know there sounds were... like an interesting film yeah yeah there was a lot of complicity between the catholic church and the nazis totally it's been, it's been well documented i mean it actually sounds similar to a film i mentioned before but without the catholic church stuff just about the making the chemicals and then being like oh shit <laughs> i realize now what i'm involved in yeah, i think yeah. i mentioned a german film called council of the gods east german movie that oh was yeah about you did. a scientist who is involved in making cyclone b and then he realizes what they're using it for, and he's like, ah, oh, this is bad. But yeah, interesting, interesting. Cool, I'll check yeah. it out. Um, I mean, it's that interesting. Was, that was Amen, right? Or, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, amen, Amen, how have you? Potato, potato. Say it. <laughs>
Uh, <laughs> it's very interesting uh, film though. I mean, I thought it was a compelling drama. Apparently, it's mostly fiction, but I mean, for very real documentation of the Catholic Church. Oh yeah. Complicity in the Holocaust goes beyond what is in this. Well, okay, so. <laughs> this film also features a thinly veiled version of Joseph Mengele, simply called the Doctor, like Doctor Who. Um, <laughs> he goes to Argentina at the end with the help of the Cardinal. <laughs> but yeah, it's a really good film. That's, like I say, the last really good film by Costa Gavras I've seen, although I haven't watched his new one with Varoufakis yet. In terms of his American films, like I say, Missing is a masterpiece. But after that, Betrayed from 1988 is kind of a really interesting film because it's written by Joe Esterhaz, who hasn't, I think, done any work in about 30 years, but he was at one point a really, really highly paid Hollywood screenwriter. He wrote Basic Instinct and stuff and Showgirls. I mean, writing two Paul Verhoeven films is pretty good, better than most people have done. Two for Verhoeven and two for Costa Gavras, you yeah. know, working with a couple of decent directors. But yeah, basically a hack. And he famously wrote that mad... <laughs> Mel Gibson asked him to write a film about the Maccabees because <laughs> Mel, Mel was trying to make amends with the Jewish people. <laughs> and Joe Esther has this, like, a weird philo-Semite. And he wrote this book about how Mel Gibson was just, like, a angry anti-semitic weirdo while they were trying to make this movie it's called heaven and mel but yeah i just think it's so fascinating that these two people ended up together although esther has interestingly his father was actually some kind of a fascist esther has learned at age 45 so he lived in a child refugee camp in austria as a child he was born in 1944 at age 45 he learned that his father had concealed his World War II collaboration in the Hungarian government after the German occupation of Hungary, and that he had organised book burnings and produced anti-Semitic propaganda. After this discovery, he cut his father out of his life entirely, never reconciling before his father's death. So, like, yeah, Joe Esterhaz is, like, a pro-Israel weirdo, but on the other hand, there is, like, this genuine, deeply felt personal reason why he feels sure. strongly against fascism and anti-semitism uh, <laughs> he portrays gibson in his book as a man fueled only by hatred <laughs> 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 apparently he was so afraid of mel gibson that he slept with a golf club in his hand <laughs> uh, right so this really too. this does actually prefigure oh not portrayed but film music box from 1989 Esther has learned in 1990 that his father was then being investigated by the US Justice Department for writing anti-Semitic propaganda in Hungary during the 30s and 40s. He refused further contact with his father after this revelation, which he later claimed to have regretted, saying, when my father was in a Hungarian old age home, the nurses kept calling and saying, he's dying and he needs to see you. Not going was a huge mistake. I've asked God to forgive me but I don't think I'll be forgiven. Esther has is a Republican. <laughs> 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 Joe Esther has. Trump is an a-hole. 
but I'm still not voting for Hillary. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that probably means he did vote for Trump, though. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, oh, apparently he did write a film as recently as 2006 about Hungary's revolution of 1956. But anyway, I'm going to talk about his second film with Costa Gavras now because I've just led into it with stuff about his dad being a Nazi when I got confused and <laughs> meant to talk about music the trade instead. Yeah, Music Box is the Nazi dad one. So, Jessica Lang, she's like a hotshot, top-flying lawyer. I watched another film written by Joe Esterhaz called Jagged Edge the other day, which stars Glenn Close as this, like, hotshot, high-flying lawyer. And it's, like, the same script as this, but with, like, the Nazi stuff taken out. It's just like he literally just took that and was like, hmm, I need to express this incredibly personal thing in my life. Well, uh, well, I'm just going to rewrite this fucking mediocre courtroom drama to be... A- Actually, I quite like this film because it's a fact... It was a good rewrite, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I thought it was better than Jagged Edge. Maybe if I'd have watched Jagged Edge first, I'd have preferred Jagged Edge. But there's a similar thing in them in that Jeff Bridges is this like charming rich guy who's accused of murdering his wife in Jagged Edge. And he clearly did it, the whole film. And they start sowing doubt that he did do it. But even when they're sowing doubt that he did do it, you're thinking they're only sowing this doubt as a narrative device and then they're going to turn it back around <laughs> and reveal that he did do it, which indeed they do. And this film is exactly like that, in that, like, it's blatantly obvious from the start that the guy is a Nazi. Right at the start, he's like, Oh, you know I was always involved in anti-communist organizations. <laughs> it's like, anti-communist organizations, like, the Red Nazi flag. party. <laughs> Again, here's a quote from Joe Esterhaus about what his dad did. Organized book burnings and cranked out the vilest anti-Semitic propaganda imaginable. He was involved in Hungary's fascist and militantly racist Arrow Cross Party. So yeah, real great guy. But yeah, he's just—he's kind of always saying, "Oh, you know, I was always uh, opposed to the, I was a freedom fighter against the communists." <laughs> he just keeps saying this stuff to his daughter, and you're like, right from the start, you're like, "This guy—he just dislikes communism too much." In the Costa Gavras film, The Confession, even more last character. Even though he's been, like, imprisoned for fucking 500 years and tortured to within an inch of his life by the communists, in the scenes they've got set after he gets out of prison, he's like, yeah, I'm still a communist, of course, like, you know? (laughs) So, like, you can suffer the yoke of an oppressive communist government and still fundamentally have communist or socialist politics. But this guy, obviously, just a nailed-on Nazi from the start. So it's just gradually kind of revealed how he's just a massive, massive Nazi piece of shit. And the evidence piles up. It's inspired, obviously, a lot by the Demjanjuk stuff as well, which we've talked about previously Mm, on the show. I don't have too many memories of this, but I liked it a lot more, I think, than his other two American films that I watched. I didn't think that Betrayed was very good. That's the one that stars Deborah Winger. So she plays this FBI person. There's this murder at the start, which is based on the murder of Alan Berg, who was this Jewish-American DJ. He was kind of pretty liberal, but he was kind of like a Lenny Bruce liberal. he kind of say crass, offensive stuff. Right. You know, <laughs> just, he was of his time. He was a shock jock yeah. who wasn't on the far right. And he was Jewish, so he'd take on these Nazis on the air, and the Nazis would call up and be like, I'm going to kill you. And he'd be like 
well, fuck you, come and say that to my face. And then one of them did and killed yeah. him. Oliver Stone, I think, does a much better dramatization of Alan Berg's life in the film Talk Radio, written by and starring Eric Bogosian. So the opening sequence basically shows a version of that. And then the FBI undercover agent, played by Deborah Winger, she goes undercover as like a simple farm girl, like in, in the <laughs> South. And she falls, yeah, she goes down. I mean, she's better at being undercover than John Voight in the Odessa file, I'll say. <laughs> she goes down and like she starts hanging out with the suspect who is pre-cracked on Berenger, plays for Nazi, and he's like super handsome and charming, obviously. And he's a great family man and everything. But obviously, one day he takes her out to like kill some black people and she's like, this is bad. But she's got a <laughs> <laughs> well, no, she's clearly really upset by it. Um, yeah, it's just... It's one of those things where it's like, I gotta take... The Holocaust happened, and it was a tragedy. <laughs> He's just like, God damn, oh, these women, they just... They just can't hack it, you know, with uh, the, the good old old-timey pursuits of a southern man. Uh, uh, but it's just... He just thinks that basically, oh, she wasn't ready. She's just a soft girl whatever but i yeah i didn't like it i don't really like all this although remember i did really like paul verhoven's black book where the, yes. the, the jewish resistance woman falls in love with the nazi I, 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 I felt that was a bit better because the guy didn't actually support National Socialism. He was just a German dude in the army who then betrayed the Nazis. Certainly more palatable, yeah. I mean, it's a bit of a cop-out, but it it, is. it's palatable. It, you can see why they copped out. Yeah, it was a bit of a cop-out, but I don't know. I just think it was just gross. She belongs in the FBI. She's She's a classic cop. Mad City feels very much like a particularly 90s sort of film and it's just kind of like mass media what's all that about eh 24 hour <laughs> you know 24 hour news it's crazy you film it and it's always on you can just stand there for 24 hours and it's news uh, the city is mad you might say what are some other kind of examples of that type of film because i swear that it's a kind of 90s thing where they're just they're all just going nuts on the news cycle and it's all just this wild thing to them but but like you can you can have like a media event you know it just, does just, just seem to have been kind of a trope through the 90s yeah yeah just like oh the reporters are all camped outside the place wow yeah i didn't think this film was very good dustin hoffman like i say as he got older his performances got more and more annoying john travolta <laughs> is not very good in it either he's pretty annoying in the film and i don't really get why costa gavras did this film because i guess like john travolta's character is kind of an honest working guy who gets dicked over because he gets fired and then he starts this whole thing by accident but then it's more about just like the media. Oh, they sell you down the river in a heartbeat. Oh, they cause more trouble than they are worth. They don't care about helping people. They just care about the bottom line. That's like, I, you know, I fucking hate the media. I was just saying earlier how like the New York Times has no right to portray itself in the way it does as these like saviors. Same with the Guardian over here. But there's just something about this particular, I guess, the media circus critique. It just feels so banal, so played out. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. That's all the Costa Gavras films I've seen for now. If I've watched the first hour of The Sleeping Car Murders, his directorial debut, and, you know, I'm looking forward to watching the last half hour because it was, it was good. 
not really political. Yeah. It's, it's just a kind of good thriller. But then you see a shot of this woman's bag, and she's got Marx's Capital in it. So cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got some movies to watch then for next time. Thank you for nice, listening nice. to our show, everyone. Check out the classic works of Costa Gavras. Although, oh, I just want to say one more point on Costa is oh, yeah. that there's few directors who've made films more in tune with my political views. However, I'm just going to say he is not immune from being a filmmaker of a certain age in that if you go on his Wikipedia section, there is a section called Defense of Polanski, <laughs> which yeah. includes the quote. He was pointing. That probably didn't deserve out. quite such a loud laugh, but I was. Yeah. No, it, yeah. It, 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 it's bitterly funny though, because it's just like ah, uh, another man of a certain age disappoints us. But um, yeah. here we go. When asked by Europe One about the director, he said, "Stop talking about rape." There is no rape in this story. Polanski was, of course, convicted of statutory rape and he served a certain amount of time in prison for it before fleeing the United States when he was out on bail. When the interviewer pointed out the victim was 13, Costa Gavras responded, Yes, but if you have seen the photos, she looks 25. That is... awful. Yeah, but we're like, she looks 25. It's like, you're 13! That's so I, I don't know, 13. like, I think... There's not a good way to defend Polanski, but I feel like that's the worst tack to have taken. No. When Polanski was arrested in 2009 at the Zurich Film Festival, when he touched down in Switzerland, there was over 100 signatures on this open letter from people in the film community in support of Rome Polanski. So like, I'll just say in advance, Costa Gavras is on this list. But yeah. let me just tell you, just so you don't go away thinking Costa is a uniquely bad figure yeah. in, uh, in Hollywood. Well, he's not in Hollywood, but in film. But go out being disappointed in loads of other artists you like <laughs> as well. First of all, you'd never expect this one, man. This is totally out of the blue. Woody Allen. No fucking way. I know. I, I just did not see that coming. <laughs> uh, next up... Pedro Almodovar. Again, I love all his movies, but like yeah, you know, the, the dude is in the Panama Papers. Like, <laughs> that's not the first time he's he's an industrial scale tax dodger. This is not the first sure. time Almodovar has, has disappointed. Has Wes Anderson. Yeah, I could see that totally. <laughs> he's a big liberal, guy, isn't he? Isn't he? I don't know about his politics, but I, well, I, I just his movies seem very liberal. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, he seems like middle class liberal. Yeah, yeah. interestingly, actually. Argento is on this list and she right. was actually a, like one of the I think she was one of the Harvey Weinstein accusers obviously that in no way discredits what she said about Weinstein or, no. or whoever it was but it's just an interesting like fortuitous historical twist to have her on here Darren yeah, Aronofsky guess, yeah. Yeah. as well uh, oh dear Aronofsky, I, I, I like some Aronofsky films I, we talked about this we, last we talked time, about I. it a bit yeah Monica Bellucci Alfonso Cuaron oh, yeah. the late Jonathan Demme Stephen Frears, British director. Yeah, Costa Gavras, there he is. Oh, Terry Gilliam. Oh, um, yeah. That's somebody that. who's got a few accusations swirling around him. Alejandro Gonzalez in Uritu. Harmony Corinne, presumably yeah, yeah. Uh, making a provocation. 
as he so often does. Uh, John Landis, fresh from just murdering kids. Do you reckon like do you reckon Roman Polanski in nineteen eighty three or whenever it was signed a petition like John Landis innocent <laughs> John Landis not child killer <laughs> Kids had it coming uh, Oh here's an interesting one, although again bear in mind Polanski is a Holocaust survivor. Claude Landsman, director of Shota. Oh, yeah. I mentioned Patricio Guzman only makes films about the Chilean barbarity. Similarly, Claude Landsman really only makes films about the Holocaust. I have to admit, I haven't seen any of his work. Wong Kar Wai is on here. David Lynch. Oh, yeah. That's disappointing. <laughs> Lynch is a bit of a His politics were never that great. I love Lynch, but... Blue Velvet. I mean, I, Good you film, know, but I it's don't... creepy. His stuff is creepy. The man's in another world. Michael Mann. <laughs> Michael Mann's a very manly director. He's, uh, of course, defending patriarchy here, as, as you'd expect. <laughs> the manliest of, of filmmakers. <laughs> Alexander Payne. The, like Woody Allen and other kind of... Like, he wrote a film about guys drinking wine sideways right. like a, right, <laughs> oh, a depressed guy. middle-aged okay. man who's been dumped by his girlfriend goes off and fucking drinks wine yeah <laughs> more of the woody allen dinner party set <laughs> hang on julian schnabel martin scorsese <laughs> oh the boy Too paolo bad. sorrentino i love sorrentino obviously the young pope the new pope all the popes oh yeah uh, <laughs> tilda swinton okay um, i just watched Okja the other night actually <laughs> Speaking of which. Oh, cool. Another hit from the bong. (laughs) (laughs) Just just a couple... I don't know why I found that so funny. Oh, Uh, man, I stole it off Emmett anyway. He keeps saying it on his podcast, and I swear (laughs) he must have stolen it from someone as well. But anyway, just a couple more. Art is Uh, theft. Yeah, exactly. Bertrand (laughs) Tavernier. He's another leftist director, basically, who's on this list. Tom Tikwa, whatever, who directed V for Vendetta. And Vim Vendors. So, so just some proper legendary people. I bet you that maybe like 10 if that of those people would sign this open letter now in 2020. Right. The climate Whoop. has changed a little. It's like Woody Allen and <laughs> like they, <laughs> just, just be like Woody. <laughs> just, just like, hey, hey, uh, it... well, well, will nobody else uh, stick their, he- their, their head out for, for our friend Roman? Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Uh, basically it would be a list of confessions yeah <laughs> well yeah anyway I think I wanted to close on that because that, on that's that the real so everyone who listens to our movie episodes now is going to be like oh fuck I really like that director at least probably <laughs> like twice or three times in that list the whole of Hollywood is practically involved it's a I think so. conspiracy of wealth and power right okay man Alright, it's been live. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Peace, man. Cool, man. Speak to you later. I'm hiding in Honduras. I'm a desperate man. Send lawyers, guns, and money. This shit has hit the fan. Guns and money. Huh. Uh. 
things and money It's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing.